What's up, everyone, and welcome into episode 109 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com, and my co-host will be joining me shortly is Mr. Mike Dawson, Managing Editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. In this week's episode, Mike and I will talk about dynamics and different ways that you can practice improving your dynamic control. Our featured artist this time is Mr. Tony Williams. In the gear review section, Mike will be checking out the Headhunters Crossovers Hybrid Rods. We'll get to a bunch of your listener questions, and as always, we'll give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. <laughs> Perfect eighth note. <laughs> Clack, clack. How are you, pal? I am doing okay. Yeah? 109. So I saw for a moment you're still rocking the glasses. What's going on with that? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm just I'm just trying to be ultra hipster, man. <laughs> uh, you know, I just noticed that in these long camps, uh, the contacts, because I get up at about 6.30, and then I'm not really done here until about... 11 p.m. and contacts from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. is just a bit much and yeah. my eyes feel so much better if I can just get through a day of of glasses so um, so it's kind of like day on day off type stuff uh, cool well, I'm going under the mm-hmm. knife next week to get my eyes fixed you are for the LASIK surgery yeah I'm getting it done a boy cool be you'll be my you'll be my test pilot if it goes well for you <laughs> I'll do it as well Wait, better, no more glasses or contacts. better go all right. I have gigs like two days after that, so it better be all right. You're going to be great. <laughs> you can rock those grandma shades that I was wearing. You'll be fine. The blue blockers. Yeah, baby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what do you got coming up? Uh, so when is that? That's next Thursday. I'll be, I'll be wow. hopefully seeing 2015 or whatever they call it, better than 2020. Yeah. That's the goal. No I want to know. And... And you said it's now quite a bit more affordable, right, than it used to be at least? Yeah, it is, surprisingly. I mean, it's still not cool. cheap, and it's, sure. it's still considered cosmetic, which I think is obnoxious, so insurance won't cover it, because it's certainly right. not cosmetic. It's medical, but, you know, whatever. I can see the uh, the ophthalmologist lobby is like, no, nah, we don't want that to happen, because then right. we won't have a job to do. But Right, for sure. Know, I need to do it. Contacts are starting to bother me. Glasses, never. I never feel right wearing glasses, and... It's like headaches are starting to set in. I'm like, all right, enough of this. Let's get it done. That's cool, man. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing your report. That can be your pick of the week. Yeah. Your eyes <laughs> <laughs> That'll be good stuff. Do you have any gigs coming up this weekend? Yeah, I do. I'm going down to, actually, I'm playing at the Washington Nationals Stadium. They have, oh, no way. Yeah, they have like a barbecue pregame thing, and I'm going to be playing for a couple hours down there. And then what else? Nice. You know, a couple local gigs, but yeah, the one at that stadium is going to be cool. Free tickets to the game too. I don't know if I'm going to be able to stick around though, but maybe for a couple innings, we'll see. That's awesome, man. That's really cool. Yeah. That's I, uh, what's What's the one that um, the Redskins play in? What's that called? Is that uh, uh, RFK? Yeah, RFK. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I uh, remember be, that being on our itinerary, and then we pulled up, and there was a stage in the parking lot. And I was like, oh, we're not yeah. playing the stadium. We're playing in the parking lot of the stadium. <laughs> okay. That makes a little more sense for my lame band. Right on. Yeah. Well, I don't think uh, RFK is still where the Redskins play. I think it, they oh, okay. moved. But, but uh, I was touring in 1843. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so let's just uh, get that cleared up. Cool, man. Well, good good luck this weekend. Yeah, that'll be fun. So you're in the middle of a camp, so I know we kind of have to keep this one. This will be a tight episode for everyone, but we're you know we're cranking it out. So yeah, what man. camp is this? Camp this? Is, this is camp. Well, uh, as far as the camps here, I do ten per year here. This is camp number eight. So I have two more after this one, and this one is advanced, and it's just a an awesome awesome situation as far as everyone that's here can really play to the point that we're actually it's a it's not really an eight person camp and a teacher it's a nine person lab i've kind of talked about that in the past i mean sometimes just skill level wise there is a teacher and there's some students but i really enjoy it when it's like a lab and we're all you know when we do our 45 minute practice routine at the end of the day which is kind of this thing where i teach all day long and throughout that day they're collecting little pieces that are important to them saying okay later tonight I'm going to practice that mm. and then this person's choosing something different and when we do the 45 minute practice routine at the end of the day like I'm on the kits with them and I'm throwing my sticks on the ground because I can't get these notes right and uh, we're all working together as a family so that's like heaven for me and this is one of those camps where um, you know nobody's holding the camp back and nobody's too far forward they're all kind of in the same area and they're all learning from each other so it really is a nine person lab so nice. uh having a blast i've got two um two ladies here uh three people 
from actually both ladies are from England, and then we have another guy from England, and the rest are Americans. So it's a, it's good fun. That's cool, dude. What's going? Are you getting texts? <laughs> well, that's the problem. We're doing this via FaceTime, so my phone has to be nearby. <laughs> I think only you can hear it, though. So hopefully, it's all okay. Good. <laughs> okay, I dig it. I mean, it's got a little. There is a little bit of that, like when the gnat gets in your ear, and it kind of like gives you the. <laughs> <laughs> the chills. Uh, so every time you get a text, I get this little, <laughs> little yeah, chill. Exactly. But other than that, I'll be fine. Yeah, so, so yeah, camp uh, this week. Oh, go ahead. I'll say you're talking about camps, and we we have yet to follow up on the idea of whether we're going to try to do this East Coast camp. And, we uh, need to do that and I've for had, sure. Uh, um, I've actually had a couple people ask if they could reserve spots already. So should nice. we? Well, put it out. We there? should definitely. Yeah, I think so because uh, I just talked to Matt and JP, and we're going to do our camp somewhere international this year so we're not going to be doing it in new york so that way this can be my east coast camp with you and carter and then i think uh jp matt and i are either going to go to australia or italy uh, for the common thread camp and just try to hit a place that we haven't been to together as a group uh so yeah i definitely think that we should do that and i think uh you know maybe uh, at the end of this week you know i'll have a week off i just have to go to nashville and do some minor videos but other than that i've got time off and we can talk about the concepts of the camp and what we would want to get across to the campers themselves because that's really important you know i don't i don't enjoy camps where it looks like some random pro drummers showed up and figured they'd wing it for a few days i like i like when the campers know hey this is what you can expect to get out of this yeah. uh, by the time you leave and then they're mentally prepared for it we're mentally prepared for it so i think um but i think yeah we definitely should consider uh did you check dates at full moon no, I saw that, that Benny okay. Greb has a camp there in February, I believe. Okay, so yeah, I mean, we could do something a little later in the year, um, but definitely doing something at Full Moon Resort for any of you guys that are listening. It's an amazing place. It'd be all-inclusive, so you would stay there on the grounds. We would have breakfast, lunch, and dinner to, uh, all together provided for us, and the camp would be myself, uh, Carter McLean, and Mike Dawson. So yeah, I think that'd be a lot of fun. Cool. Well, yeah. So let's I guess. try to get it on the books next week. All right. We'll follow up with more info as we figure it out. But anyway, exactly. <laughs> You're on the journey with us. Welcome to booking a drum camp, everyone. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into let's get into some drumming. Uh, and so we're going to talk about how to develop and uh, practice dynamics. And you and I early on in this podcasting thing, uh, I guess we both learned together on air the actual definition of dynamics. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it was a little different than what we had thought, you know. And it, it made more sense because we hear the term dynamic used a lot when they when people describe athletes. Like, he's a dynamic running back. She's right. a dynamic right. point forward. And that never made sense to me because dynamics to me just was kind of like play quiet, play loud. I didn't <laughs> yeah. really understand the true definition of dynamic being – you know more um, the differences between those and being more energetic. It had so much more meaning than what we had thought, and we'd always equated it to just volume. Yeah, right. I think it's it's doesn't it generally mean like something that changes? It has progress. something that changes. Yeah, it's, yeah exactly. And I think uh, in a little bit we'll be talking about Tony Williams, but that's a great definition of somebody that wasn't only dynamic in. Uh, in volume, but was dynamic in rate of speed, and and he was always changing. I was watching a bunch of Tony Williams solos, and he would just go into this non-time laden thing where he was just almost revving the engine. Yeah, but it wasn't yeah. a subdivision; it wasn't related to anything. He'd even take his foot off the left, the hi hat, you know, and just there was no timekeepers. Just da 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 da, you know. And so, um, so yeah, so dynamics, practicing dynamics, and I would say. You know, you have to have someone in mind. It helps, at least in my opinion, to have someone in mind that you think, okay, that's a dynamic drummer. Now I'm going to try to practice to on my dynamics so that I can eventually achieve that. For for me, being young, and maybe you can chime in with who you looked up to, I think the first dynamic drummer that I looked up to was probably Matt Chamberlain. Um, mm, okay. Now, it doesn't mean he was the first person that could do you know that was dynamic it was that i didn't recognize it in the other players obviously growing up in rock things were pretty monotone you know um even if it was a great rock drummer it was a pretty powerful all the way through type of thing yeah um and so i think when i heard matt chamberlain and critters buggins first album i just thought like and and the ed Brickell, brickell stuff i thought 
I really don't know what's happening here. Um, there's so much texture woven through this. So um, for you, was it a jazz drummer or who, who kind of perked you up to the point like, oh, this is not just straight ahead, note for note drumming? I think John Bonham, really. I mean, because okay. that's a great example. My uncle had me playing in his band right away, and it was a lot of ACDC, a lot of Zeppelin, a lot of Kiss, a lot of, you know, classic rock, and then on the border of early heavy metal. And the Zeppelin stuff just immediately stuck out like, okay, that's there's more to that than just playing the beat like right. ACDC stuff for the most part it's just it's pile driving rock I love it but it's you know it's one dynamic right. it's just being a not driver. being dynamic doesn't mean it sucks right, right. I mean there's we have I mean god I, I've played you know every Motley Crue song there is a trillion times uh, yeah. so or Pantera or whatever so it's not a negative thing uh, and, and honestly as soon as you said Bonham I thought you know what Matt Chamberlain was when I actually started taking it seriously, but the person that actually probably introduced me to it would be my dad giving me old Cream records and listening to Ginger Baker. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. And has a very similar thing to Bonham as far as you've got a jazz cat that's bringing in that rock and roll sensibility and just the chaos that went along. I mean, Ginger wasn't a dynamic drummer. He was a dynamic human being, and so was Bonham. Yeah, you know? yeah, right. But yeah, I think with Ginger, the dynamic definition is more like changing and being explosive but for exactly bonham it's more the actual musical dynamic for me like he can mm-hmm. he can bring it down really quiet and still you know never lose the intensity and then I also think, uh, really smash it when he needed to and and within yeah. one measure there'd be like there a we go that's what flow. i was going to say is it's not happening as like verse chorus or this song that song it's this hi-hat is at forte immediately followed by this pianissimo ghost note uh so it's like note for note dynamics yeah. um, and control to create that texture that then you and i both fell in love with with matt chamberlain um and so many after that so let's talk about developing that yeah, yeah. what what did you do i mean how did you start caring about this for your own drumming i think it's um this is a, a question i get asked a lot and it's it becomes more and more difficult for me to answer because it's it's just part of what I've always done. But I think, like, I get a lot of questions like, how do you play with such a flow and a nice, you know, smooth, relaxed feel? And I think it's because I'm always practicing dynamics and, and practicing dynamics on the volume level. So a lesson that stuck with me early on was when I was, well, I was in college, but I took a lesson with Carl Allen, and he said, you know, he was kind of being hyperbolic, but he said you need to practice every beat and every groove that you know at every tempo and at every dynamic level. So that right. just kind of set the the barrier like extreme because we all have our comfortable dynamic and our comfortable tempos. But can you do that at pianissimo at 200 BPM or can you do it at right. triple forte at 40 BPM? So I I just practiced everything that way as much as I could. I mean, not everything, obviously, but whenever I thought about it and then more importantly it was how do you go from soft to loud that's that's what I think where actual where you become a dynamic drummer is can you smoothly go from super quiet to super loud without getting you know without affecting the feel or the intensity or the, the tone that you're producing because once you start playing loud a lot of times our our tone goes out the window or when yep. we're playing really quiet we're kind of like feather tapping the drums and not producing a full sound yeah, and I think also what is really loud is completely dependent on the note that preceded it. So uh, it's all relative. If I play the quietest, softest ghost note ever, then I can play like what most people would consider like a normal stroke, and that's going to be an accent in relation to that ghost note. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. If I'm playing in a rock situation, you know, my ghost notes are what most jazz drummers would consider to be accents. Yeah. So it's all it's all relative. I think the other thing that helps with dynamics and recognizing dynamics is taking private lessons. I remember being, you know, coming off the road with my rock band and then being in Pete Magadini's basement and he's three feet away from me. He's asking me to play this extremely complex stuff that the complexity caused me to muscle up and it, it, like, it took mm. so much more physical effort right. to play the things he's asking, but he's three feet away from me and he's a jazz cat and he, and he, he doesn't want me to blow him out of the water and he's not about to put in earplugs. His idea is like, Hey, you can see that I'm right here. Yeah. Quiet the hell down. You <laughs> yeah. know, don't hit a rim um, shot on every back. Yeah. Beat, I'm you know? right here yeah. <laughs> and I'm not about to reach for my earplugs just cause you can't figure this out, you know? And, and in his mind, the idea was, Look, if you can't play it quiet, you can't play it. So let's just admit that you can't play it. Don't don't give me excuses that like if you were just allowed to play it 
faster or louder you could do this. If you can't do it quiet and at the tempo I'm asking, you can't do it. Yeah. And that was something that made me – it's the same thing as the Carl Allen thing. I'd go home and my thought was always – and I tell this to my students too. Uh, you know, They say, how do I know when I'm done? And I say, well, if I was standing four feet away from you with my arms folded looking down at you, could you play this? If you can, then you're probably in a pretty good situation. And I was always thinking, like, okay, Pete's going to be, you know, one week from now, Pete's going to be three feet away from me. Yeah. I'm going to be on his kit, which is wide open. You know, no, uh, I, I don't get to go to Pete's house and be like, do you mind if I put three king size pillows in your kit? Because that <laughs> yes. would make me feel better. Because um, I'm not about to hit it any softer. I just need you to shut the drum down. So it's like, you know, and I, I, I'd put myself in those mental situations. Uh, the other thing that really helped me on a very practical level of how to practice dynamics. Uh, especially for those of you that maybe aren't as obsessed with it naturally as Mike and I were, it were just simple grid systems and simple accent patterns. And, you know, I always considered 16th notes to be the broth of my soup, but it was 16th notes at triple pianissimo. I mean, like as quiet as I could. Um, and I had it down, 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 and then everything rose out of that. But there was always this broth of my soup that was just going... And then out of that was and being able to practice going through syncopation, saying, okay, the written part is my accents. Everything else is the quietest ghost notes possible. Uh, things like that were really helpful. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the um, contrast is is probably the step one. Like, Yes. Can agreed. you, because Drumline taught me that there's different levels. If you think of like zero would be as low as you can go. One would be one and a half inches. Two would be three inches. Three would be, you know, just gradually adding right. stick height. And I think right. that that was important for me to realize that the volume is created by the stick height, not by how hard you hit. So you use the same right. like. I try Effort. to teach like this like maximum velocity stroke, regardless of of what stick height you're at. So if you're playing at one inch from the drum, you're still snapping the stick with the maximum speed that your wrist can can move. So right. then you're getting a nice full sound. But if you elevate to twelve inches off the drum with that same maximum s- stick speed it's going to be that much louder and you're not actually muscling into the drum. You're still just using the same stroke. So I think of right. accents being a level six, let's say 12 or 15 inches from the drum, everything else being a level one, which would be, you know, one and a half, three inches at the most from the drum. Right. Starting there. And then once you get control of that extreme, you can say, all right, now what if I go, you know, medium loud to medium soft and, and explore the subtleties. But I think you got to have the contrast first. That would be my yeah. my first suggestion. And I think the thing that I picked up from uh, Jeff Picaro and, and Shannon Forrest and also from my classical lessons was if you play more than two notes in a row of the same subdivision, they should, they should do something. They shouldn't be the identical volume. So either mm-hmm. it's got to grow up or it's got to grow down or you've got to have some kind of contour to it. So that helps me with fills. So if you're doing just like sixteenth notes around the kit, it has to yeah, it has to go somewhere. I mean, a simple like four notes on the snare, four notes on the rack tom, four notes on the floor tom can sound really goofy, but it can also sound really. It can sound amazing (laughs) depending on how you how you shape it. I always call that on the five piece kit the around the world fill. Right, right. Like dugga 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 dugga. But yeah, but then if you do that exact same orchestration, same notes and everything, but it's back. Then it's like, oh, well, that was a super hip fill. Yeah. It's like, well, it's the same exact thing. The exactly. only thing that changed was the dynamic shift and contour to each note. I think that's another thing, too, is you start off dynamically, if we're talking about volume, being able to control whether you're quiet or loud. Like, cool, I can play quiet and I can play loud. Yeah. And the next thing is you start to control it. Uh, and I would say maybe the goal on that level is that every note eventually has its own volume value. And you're able to control that in the moment, which, you know, in the beginning, when you're just learning a new pattern, you're just happy to play the damn thing yeah, exactly. two times in a row. Um, so for me and my and, you know, it's always kind of one of those things where I'm conscious of the dynamics, but it's not until I really own the pattern, whatever I'm playing, that I can start to care about every single note because uh, – it's very hard for me mentally to care about the volume of each note when I can't remember which note is coming next. Once I have the pattern down and the pattern is completely memorized, then I can really care about it. And then hopefully the patterns and the rights and the lefts and the counting eventually all go out the window and there's this sound that emerges and then I'm singing the sound. And then 
that singing translates into the drumming. But to get there, there's a lot of that practice time where I'm sitting on a pad going, okay, uh, like a good example would be, you know, we work so hard on our hands and on our linear playing, but a lot of drummers don't spend enough time working on their unison playing, especially the dynamic uh, difference between maybe two limbs where uh, we just had this yesterday in camp. We were playing some uh, patterns between the hands, like let's say inverted paradiddle. And then we were doing a grid system. Well, sometimes that grid system on the kick, sometimes that kick shows up on one of your ghost notes. Well, then the camper would play their bass drum really quiet because it came in on a ghost note. Uh, No, no, no. You're going to have to nail that foot while just barely moving your left hand. And so one thing that I do for myself or did for myself and do with my students is we'll just take random Latin patterns, let's say uh, a cascara pattern, and it's ghosted on the left and slamming on the kick. And you're going, doom, 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 while the, the left is ghosting. And then you just slowly reverse that until you're ghosting the kick and accenting the left hand. And then you're just you know kind of turning up the volume knobs uh, but opposing so the foot and the left hand are just kind of changing places um, mm. and then same thing with the right hand same thing with the left foot so things like that can really help as well now what about before we move into Tony Williams what about thinking about practicing dynamics on maybe a subdivisional scale so being able to be dynamic with your rate of speed yeah do you the, ever yeah do I you think, ever play something and then try to think like oh i wonder what this would sound like as 16th note triplets since it's groups of four or whatever yeah i mean practicing just the the time pyramid where you go from quarters to right quarter note triplets to eighth notes eighth note triplets 16th on on up and down i think that's really good if you if you do it two ways you say i'm going to do one dynamic level so you're going to say i'm going to be medium soft maybe three inches okay. from the drum and then you're going to make sure that you don't shift that dynamic when you go to the different subdivisions because there's natural tendencies we play faster depending some people play louder some people play softer yeah. it just depends on on your technique but so maintaining that consistency and learning that and then also letting each one of those maybe grow so if you're going you know, maybe during the quarter note measure, you go from soft to medium loud, and then when you get to the quarter note triplets, you bring it back down and do the same thing, like applying crescendos and decrescendos, or crescendoing the entire thing up to 32nd notes until you're playing full volume, fast 32nd notes, and then when you bring the subdivisions back, you back off the dynamics. I mean, there's yeah. endless ways to do it. Endless and I think ways. Each one of those has a different emotion. Like really loud, fast thirty-second notes has a totally different feeling than really quiet thirty-second notes. Like, oh, totally, totally opposite. Quiet thirty-second notes are creating so much tension. It's like a you know, yeah. like a very fast ticking watch. Right. Um, yeah. Or it's almost like a then, bed, like a hum. But the super loud yeah. ones, I mean, that's machine gun. You're going for, and that's what I'm calling you know the broth of my soup. It's like okay, we've got this little thing happening. Now let's slowly start putting in our vegetables and our our chicken and our steak. Uh, the other thing that I like to do with the you know, the subdivisional pyramid is just go through and say, okay, I'm going to go from quarters all the way up to 30 second notes, accenting the right, ghosting the left. Especially when you get to those triplets, it's going to, everything becomes kind of halftime of what the actual subdivision is. And then you do the same thing, but doing the left. And it really helps you to get the E's and the U's when you're in the 16th. And then those mm. in-betweens of the 16th note triplets. Um, and, or you can even play full volume on a snare if you want and then just put one of your hands is hitting your leg instead of the drum just so you can hear what all of the in-between notes sound like. Um, That's cool. I so, like that. Like you said, it, it really is endless. Well, let's talk about one of the most dynamic drummers to ever live, uh, the late, great Tony Williams. Um, so was he an influence for you early on? Yeah, he was. One of the first jazz records I got was a bootleg Miles Davis quintet record. Um, okay. I bought it on a field trip. I was in a, yeah, I think I was in middle school. <laughs> we went to, where did we go? Annapolis, maybe? And we were in like a gift shop, and they had some random bootleg tapes. So I bought, it was the, I don't know what, it would have been around the Nefertiti era, Miles uh, Davis quintet. And then I okay. also bought a bootleg of John Coltrane, A Love Supreme. So those, <laughs> those nice. two records... From I mean, at that point, my jazz experience was like big band and like Frank sure. Sinatra, and you know maybe I heard Dave Weckl a little bit at that point. So this was like music from Mars, and I hated it and loved it at the same time. So it kind of became like a 
a rite of passage for me. Like, I've got to understand this music. I've got to figure out what the heck is going on. Why is it so great? Why do people just revere these two drummers? It, and it yeah. just sounds like drums falling downstairs to me. Right. So it took a long time. I mean, it was... Maybe it was fortunate that I had bootlegs because they sounded like crap, too. It was just like, this is terrible. But when I finally got the real recordings, like I got Nefertiti on CD from Columbia House again, it was like, oh, now I get it because it's, it's a beautiful recording. Like when they were, that band was playing live, it was, they were going for it. It was, I mean, that, yeah. that tape machine could barely keep up with them. But the studio recording, it's just gorgeous. So, yeah, he was... Early, early on, I think for me, the difference between Tony and Elvin is Tony, you can kind of analyze and figure out what he's doing. Not that it doesn't make it any less artistic or unique, sure. but he's so specific and accurate with what he does that you can kind of analyze it. It's kind of perfect for jazz pedagogy. Whereas Elvin, gotcha. it's like, Elvin's like, all right, he plays a lot of triplets. Okay. And then <laughs> what's all this other stuff? It's kind of like less you can't really analyze it as easily I don't think at least for me like on paper it just looks like a lot of triplets and 16th notes but with Tony you're seeing like oh that's a group of five that's a group of four he's phrasing dotted quarter notes he's phrasing quarter note triplets like it's a lot clearer and kind of more academic so he got kind of gravitated towards him because like all right I can study that more I had to kind of like grow into Elvin (laughs) it became like you know like a like a fine wine or something like it tastes like yeah, vinegar. Yeah, yeah. I don't get it. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, it's both of those guys, you know, are, um, it, there's so much that comes down to personal taste. You either like it or you don't, you know what I mean? Yeah. And someone doing donuts in your parking lot. Uh, Oh, it's a dog. Oh yeah. It's not like someone was out there just burning rubber. I was like, yeah, get it, man. Yeah, we got a couple of small dogs in the office today. You keep shipping this to my girlfriend's house and my wife is pissed. I'm just doing donuts in the MD parking lot. Um, I don't know why that's the first thing that came to my mind. Some guy that got found out by you guys shipping his magazine to the wrong place. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah, that's I think, really you know, weird what, that you would think of that. <laughs> I tell, I'm telling you, I'm on the up and up, man. Everything's cool. Home life is great. But I, I, just I can't some... really draw the line. I mean, you know, connect the dots on that one. Yeah, that's that's my biggest fear, that my girlfriend gets my MD subscription. And I'm like, don't bring that to my house. I'll pick it up later. I got my online copy. I'm fine. It's going to be okay. Oh, Anyways. Man. Anyway, Tony Williams. Tony Williams. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely something. I, I think... I may have gotten a little bit um, turned off by it early on because of stories. You know, I, I uh, when I started learning about these guys was like in my in my teens and my late teens. And by the time I was into like sixteen and seventeen, I was just constantly hanging out at drum shops. And drum shops are breeding grounds for drama talk because mm. there's you know eventually we've discussed every note there is to discuss, and and so you start talking about drummers and. Tony was notoriously like not an easy clinician to bring in. And, oh, right. Yeah. yeah. And I just kept hearing these horror stories <laughs> about what it was like on the car ride from the airport back to the <laughs> hotel and then what he was like at the hotel and then what he was like at Soundcheck. And it was like, so it was kind of one of those things where I already had this bad taste in my mouth. Uh, honestly, for me, I, I do think that someone's personality and who they are as a human adds to how much I enjoy their art. Um, I wish it wasn't that way. I wish I could just listen to it in a vacuum, but um, there is a little bit of that to it. And it's just one of those things where I think that there was that. And then there was the thing of me listening to it and going like, yeah, I don't totally get this. And the other thing that I think, and this is, this is a very positive for Tony is that because I didn't hear him first, I heard everyone else that was influenced by him. I had already heard it in crystal clear recordings, and I had heard the people that were standing on his shoulders trying mm. to push things forward. Yeah, true. And then I was going back, um, and it, and because it was also in a genre that I was not connected to, there was this thing of like, yeah, you know, I'm not quite getting this. I mean, I still, you know, I, I obviously did my research and listened to a bunch of Tony yesterday and today, and. I'm like, man, look at them big old drums. He's out there with Herbie, and he's got his giant yellow kit with his big toms. 
And um, but I, I I will say this, you know, I really started to enjoy his exploration of time. I, I yeah, you know, maybe I'm often and you're you're a Tony fan, so I'm totally in, maybe in left field here, but I just heard so much um, of what Dennis eventually took to move forward. I heard it in Tony. Mm, and I was like, yeah. oh man, I've heard Dennis do that stuff. Yeah, he, he's pretty outwardly admits that he stole a lot from Tony Williams and Billy Cobb. Okay. So it's Tony and Billy are kind of like Dennis's right. main guys. Yeah, I think it's, it's funny you bring up that era because Tony had like kind of like three very distinct careers, almost like three different people. You've got the teenage right. bebop, hard bop, you know, dabbling in into the free jazz Tony when he was just essentially he was taking what Max and Philly Joe and Roy Haynes and even Elvin were doing and just making it, you know, taking it to the next level. But then he had a shift in his like I think late twenties maybe, where he decided I'm not going to play any of that crap anymore. <laughs> you know, I'm not. Jesus. I think there's even a quote of him saying he, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he took like a. He took. He gathered up all the information that anyone's ever played, and he decided, "I'm going to play what what hasn't been played." So he abandoned a lot of the, wow. the traditional vocabulary, and I think that's when you hear him switching into like the flam rudiments. Things. Mm-hmm. I mean, there weren't many before Tony. There weren't many people playing Swiss triplets and inverted flam taps and stuff on the drums. It just wasn't really right. happening. He kind of decided he's going to take the hardest stuff he can do and figure out how to use it. So there's that kind of like transition period like late 60s when he kind of all of a sudden it becomes a fusion drummer <laughs> you know he's got right. the huge yeah. kit and he's he's into the beatles so he's you know he's playing with the organ trio and they're kind of crushing it and totally different than the early miles davis and you got the 80s era which is where he kind of went back to his jazz roots but kept the giant kit it was yeah totally that was different. what was so weird is is i'm watching like i said i mean when i said herbie i don't mean herbie with miles you know and uh who was on base uh, ron carter yeah yeah back in that yeah i don't mean that i mean like i mean like uh beverly hills cop yeah part one <laughs> yeah. herbie hancock and but they're oh, but they're not the way, playing that stuff that's yeah. not herbie hancock that's that's jan hammer we had right. we had a listener actually correct us on that. We're thinking of that's right. Rocket, the song Rocket. It's not yep. it's not Beverly Hills Cop, although it's very but similar. It, it totally <laughs> yes, exactly. It's, of the it's, era. <laughs> you know what? I don't even think of it as like a Beverly Hills Cop theme song. I think of it there's like this scene where they're walking where he's walking down the street to go to the museum for the first time and he sees somebody in a Michael Jackson jacket and he starts <laughs> laughing. And that's like even though that's not the song that's playing at the time, that's what's in my head is is is, is Herbie. So okay, so but I'm what I'm saying is Herbie. I mean, I'm watching this video this morning, and they're they're definitely playing jazz. But Tony's got the full like six piece kit. Yeah, it's fusion in, kit. Yeah, yeah, and it's just like, and he's playing stuff that it's like I what I do it really enjoy about it is I can't put my finger on it as far as giving it a genre. I can't say oh he's playing bop chops. He's playing big band chops he's playing fusions it's like man i don't even know what this is it's just drumming yeah um, and that, i mean all that stuff that we take for granted like quarter notes on the left foot he was one of right. the first guys to do that that kind of abandoned the two and four uh kind of rule unspoken rule he said i'm yeah. just going to play all four that way i can imply all kinds of different downbeats and stuff and not be tied to that backbeat that's kind of yeah. a tony thing i'm sure there's other people doing it but he kind of started that and or at least and it gives it, it so much more drive. You yeah, know? exactly. And you can—I mean, it's like relentless. That's that's yeah, you doubled the, the pulse. Yeah, technically. it's like the dentist. I think that's the dentist thing. He picked up on that vibe, that kind of relentless freight train kind of groove. Mm-hmm. You know, and really kind of getting the ride symbol kind of swelling up, and so yeah, it, it's kind of like in in the era that like Vinny and Steve Smith and those guys and Dennis they gravitate towards that that seventies fusion funk Tony. Which is totally different than the early right. Miles Davis Tony. They're totally different drummers. It's kind of, I can't. It's hard to even like draw the line. There's a couple, like those the last couple of records he made with Miles when they get a little bit more fusion ish. You can kind of hear where he's going, but once he starts his own band, Lifetime, it's like, whoa, what is this? This is not the same drummer. It's a totally different. Yeah, dude. I mean, I, and I think that that is probably where things went awry for me in my earlier years with Tony is you hear the name and then you go to Tower Records and there's 96 albums 
yeah. and they're all completely different. And yeah. it's really a roll of the dice. You know, you almost need someone to shepherd you into Tony Williams and say, okay, start here. And then understand that as we make our way through this journey, you're not going to get just the standard progression in the same genre that you're used to, where nothing really changes stylistically with the music, but the drummer just keeps getting better because he's getting he or she's getting older. This is like, like you said, you know, I get this one album and then I get another album, and I'm like, this can't be the same cat. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, totally different. This was only six years apart. <laughs> How is this possible? You know. Um, and what I do, another thing that I do appreciate, but appreciate about it is he wasn't constantly saying okay well this year i'm going to be technical i'm going to be more advanced every single day like sometimes you listen and you go like wow you came way back in note density and in pushing the physical limits of the instrument and now you've changed into caring about some completely different aspect about the instrument that's equally as important but as drummers we're kind of always a lot of times just pushing for more 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 and he wasn't always doing that yeah i think later so. on when he kind of settled into being more of a composer the drumming took a less prominent role it was more like right. you know let the drums kind of fit within the composition it's kind of a it's a really unique career and it was i mean he was a child prodigy so there's a whole different you know level of i mean he was ready to roll when he was 17 years old playing stuff that yeah we're still studying in college still programs. trying to catch yeah. up to yeah absolutely but it was also a pretty short career so it's it's like a lot of stuff just happened in a couple of decades um right. the stuff in in what issue is this the october issue we focused on some of the early jazz stuff um off of the live live miles davis record four and more which i think I think it's probably a good spot to start with Tony because that band at that point was just, they were completely telepathic. They could change subdivisions. They could change where they were implying the, the swing beat at will. Uh, and it's also still tied to the jazz tradition, so you're not hearing him do his totally out of, you know, out of left field right. approach from later the later era. But, you know, and the articles kind of break down some cool things that, that he... Like I said, and he implies quarter note triplets. He implies quarter dotted quarter notes. He's kind of doing the stuff that like Ari Honig and Jeff Watts and you know a lot of guys we think now are playing like really modern and hip. He <laughs> they're, was they're catching up to Tony. They're catching up to Tony. I mean, he was doing this in I don't know what year that is. It's it's sixties, nineteen sixty four. The the Miles album four and more. Four and more. Yep. Nice. That'd be a great Four more is that one's good, and also there's a companion to that. It's called My Funny Valentine. They're both live. The My Funny Valentine has more kind of less blazingly fast tracks. Okay. And I like those better because that's when you really hear the band like do some really yeah. spur of the moment cool improvised arrangement ideas and stuff. So four more is like, do you want to hear Tony Blaze? My Funny Valentine is you want to hear the band kind of do their their magical thing. But nice. Good records. Love it. Awesome. Well, everyone, check out Tony Williams. I'll do my homework as well. And uh, you don't have to go to any specific website. Just type in Tony Williams, uh, right. drummer, and you'll be fine. All right, let's get into some gear review. So this time you're checking out the Headhunters Crossovers Hybrid Rods. Yeah. I know you're a huge fan of I'm the rods. I'm a huge fan of the rods. I'm becoming a little bit more uh, <laughs> open and willing to explore multi-rods. <laughs> well, I, let me tell you this, dude. So we have a camper here from England right now uh, named Kim Lee, and he was out there. He w he wanted to play this really beautiful track. And he, have you uh, got a chance to demo those? Um, I don't know who makes them. Maybe Promark, but the broom stick rod things. Like oh, they're yeah. like. Isn't that Vader? So anyways, isn't that a Vader product? <laughs> no, no, no. They make the little monsters. Oh, they might make them Pro too. Mark. They're talking about the Promark. They're actually like brooms, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Thanks. I'll check the Vader catalog. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, so, um, so, anyways, he he's he wants to go out and play the song, and he's like, "God, I hope Mike Dawson's not watching." And I'm like, "Wow, is it that big of a deal? Like, is it that known that Dawson hates <laughs> like bundled sticks?" And I'm like, "Dude, he doesn't. It, if you make the song sound good, he'll be fine with it if he's watching." So, anyways, uh, uh, no, no. So let me let me dis disclaimer. I hate when. You're forced to use multi rods because you can't control your own dynamics. Agreed. That's I think what we I both hate. feel that same way. Where, and and you and I were in our prime years of uh, late teenagehood when the acoustic versions of bands started playing on MTV Unplugged, and they played the drummers played exactly the same as always. They just 
chose to use hot rods. And right. I was like, yeah, yeah, I played acoustic tonight. And it's like, <laughs> no, you did stick twirls with hot rods. That's not – so let's get into something that you did get to review. I've honestly – this is new to me. <laughs> Headhunters is the company. Yes, Headhunters um, – let me just confirm. Yeah, they're in Canada. They're you know a small small company, but they actually were making these types of sticks for other companies. You might remember Promark had a similar looking – like a wooden handle stick with different types of rods on the tip, and they had like red rubber handles and stuff. Yep. Those were actually made by these guys. Okay. Um, so they, you know, they started making these kind of crazy hybrid things where you, it's you've got a handle where it's like a hickory stick, but then they put different types of plastic rods or bamboo rods or plastic rods with with beads on them, so you can get a more prominent right. cymbal sound. And there's one that has tambourine jingles on it. So really, kind of creative alternative sounds that. I find intriguing because I'm not going to grab these if I just need to play super quiet and I can't control my dynamics. I'm going to grab these if I need that sound. For a sound, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a the one with the tambourine sound. jingles got like beads on it and yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. So the handle, though, is a <clears throat> drumstick, right? Yeah, it's basically like a – I mean, they put like a, a gripper on the handle area, but it's yep. basically like a, a wooden drumstick that the top third has been cut off and they've installed – different types of multi-rods into the tip and then put another okay. piece of rubber to kind of hold that all in there so before we get too much into the sound and, and did you get a chance to test all of these or just a few of them um no all of these are here yep i did i don't have any okay. audio to drop in we're not going to do that but okay. <laughs> we do have sure sure i have messed with them all uh, how is the feel i mean because they like you said it's a third of a drumstick and it's cut off and then there's this piece that's kind of uh, I don't want to say glued on because it almost makes that sound cheap, and you can see by looking at this, this stuff is not cheap. This is really well done. But the drumstick does stop at some point, and then there's this other material yeah. completing the rest of the stick. So how does it feel? Do you get response out of it? You do. I think you get more than you do with a full dowel stick because you okay. you can actually get a pretty convincing rim shot sound with it if because you, you can smack in the, the wooden shoulder of it. Sure. And then that upper kind of rubber whatever you want to call that that's holding that that's between the rods and the hickory you can use that for cymbal accents and get a nice big washy roll or an accent so it's kind and, of I mean, more I would diverse assume because of that rubber um shield there you can do that without damaging the rods themselves yeah exactly pretty nice so you got a you know a range of different you know it's there's more dynamics there's a you can get a fuller sound my problem with regular dowel sticks is they're kind of limited on how full of a sound you kind of always get that clicky thin rod sound sure. so this just by the different ways you angle the sticks or if you hit with the combination of the rods and that that rubber thing at the top i don't know what what you would call that the neck yeah <laughs> I, yeah it's like the neck i mean well what i was wondering is just how heavy is that area of rubber does it throw off did you feel natural when you're playing these, or does it throw off the weight of the stick? No, it feels completely comfortable. I was cool, able man. to go from these to regular drumsticks and not feel like anything was. They didn't feel like they were super heavy or super light. They kind of just felt more familiar. I mean, the the handle has a gripper on it, so that you know, I guess if that wasn't there, it would feel more like a drumstick. But I didn't have any issues with it. Uh, the these I didn't notice the black marking up the heads at all. Uh, oh wow! Okay. I remember with the old Promark ones, the red rubber would it would mark up your heads and symbols pretty bad. Sure. This I didn't notice that. Maybe I'm just that better of touch. I don't know now than <laughs> ten years ago. But you're not swiping all over the place. Yeah. Now what? I mean, when I look at the ones. By the way, you guys can see everything that Mike and I are looking at just on ModernDrummer.com, um, and you can see the the product close up, product close up for this. Um, but when I look at the one that has the tambourine jingle on it, it just seems like, oh, man, I, if I handed you those, I feel like you'd be stuck on the kit for an hour yeah, making yeah. sounds. Yeah, again, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an option that, that I like just having to do. And the, the beads actually surprisingly add a lot of cymbal uh, clarity. Like I well, use, I, yeah, I mean, they look like nylon tips almost. Yeah, exactly. I use these when I have to play like a lot of – one of these bands I play, one of the cover songs would use a Tim McGraw kind of train beat song. Mm. But it goes, you know, it kind of opens up a little bit louder. So rather than switching over to regular sticks, I'm able to play the ride cymbal with these and still get enough kind of wash. And it 
you know, it's got a little bit more headroom than brushes or regular sure. regular rods. So they're pretty neat. I could also see this being really cool for those hybrid drummers out there that are maybe doing hat and snare drum while sitting on a cajon. And this is what they have in their right hand to yeah, that totally. more texture. Totally. Um, so I could see a lot of uses for these. So, yeah, everyone check out Crossovers. That's the company. And they're the hybrid rods. No, the company and is Headhunters. That's what I said. The <laughs> company is Headhunters. And they're called the Crossovers Hybrid Rods. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you can either check it out on moderndrummer.com or you can just check out their, their website. And if there's if there's ever a product that we cover and you guys really want to learn more about it or you want to check it out, don't feel weird asking your store, uh, your local store about it. That's what stores want. They want you to ask about products so they can go, oh, that's the third time somebody's asked us. Let's get those in. There's a need for that product. So uh, you can always feel free to do that. And local, you know, I, I worked at, in drum shops for, for years and we loved when people asked for gear that we didn't carry because then we knew what to place in our next order. Right, so exactly. Yeah. Never feel weird about that stuff. All right, let's get into some listener questions. Okay, let's see. Our first one is from... By the way, you can send... We're getting through our stack of, of old ones, so hopefully uh, we'll get some of the more recent ones soon. You can email your questions to mdinfo at moderndrummer.com. This Boom. first one is from Colin. Uh, he says, I heard you recommending the Ludwig Superphonic as a go-to snare. I'm interested in adding one to my collection. What should I look for when buying a used one? It seems there are many eras and options. I don't know where to start. Simple answer for me is all of them are going to sound great. Make sure that it doesn't have a jacked-up throw-off. That would be number one. Hmm. I mean, they're all going to be fine. They're all going to sound great. They're consistent whether you get a 60s one or a 70s or an 80s or a brand new one. And just for the listeners, what is the superphonic as far as the metal? Yeah, well, technically superphonic is just a metal snare drum by Ludwig, and they have bronze ones, they have brass ones, they have okay. aluminum ones. But what we think of a Ludwig superphonic is the chrome over aluminum snare. So that would be what, I mean, technically the Black Beauty is a superphonic. It's a black nickel brass superphonic. But not to confuse you further, the superphonic in in almost the universal terms is a aluminum shell that's chromed and has 10 lugs so nice. i would just get any of them and just again just make sure the, the throw-off works or replace it right away because those old ones they're they get sticky they they don't hold tension very well um, i don't gig with one of mine because it has the original throw-off the one i actually gig with i had to update it with a danette uh throw-off because he makes one nice. that'll replace the the old Ludwig throw. So, any of them. That's my answer. <laughs> Beautiful. Love it. Uh, next one. This is from Dave. Um, oh, he asked like two questions that I think we could probably answer these both. Is there a consensus on how to describe drum sizes? Typically, the depth is listed first. <laughs> um, but for some reason... Yeah, so it's... Some some companies use the, the diameter first and then the depth, and then others use the depth and the diameter. And it's it's pretty funny because we've been old school holdout. We go with the original, you know, Great American Drum, Ludwig and Gretchen, everyone back in the day. It was de- it was depth to diameter. So a six and a half by fourteen inch snare drum is fourteen inches wide and six and a half inches deep. Ugh. But yeah. you're here, you've seen a lot of companies that, that do it the opposite. You mean they do it the right way? Well, I mean, <laughs> define the right way. <laughs> no, exactly. That's, that's what I'm saying is it's, it, it, it's whichever one made its way to you first is the way that you know it as. And, um, you know, when, when I started working in drum shops, you know, and I'm looking at these catalogs, there was no consistency. Yamaha would do it one way, DW would do it another way, Gretsch would do it one way, Mapex would do it another way. And obviously there is the good thing is the sizes for the most part they make sense. So there's never a time that I thought it was a six and a half inch head on a fourteen inch deep <laughs> snare. I've never thought that. Like I always could figure it out. Like, okay. I don't think it's an eight inch tom, you know, with uh with a 12 inch depth yeah like, uh you know but it, it is tough like i mean i still personally like that the first thing that comes out of your mouth tells me what size the drum is and the next thing is the depth but a lot of people um you know are old school and, and do it the other way so so you guys in modern drummer if you're going to describe a kit it's still going to be uh 
a six and a half by 14 snare an eight by 12 rack it is and, and we've done that since day one and i have to change it like 99.999 percent of the time when stuff comes in so really i okay. mean it we'll just have to it's not like we'll be that way forever it's just that's the way we started and it's kind of weird to flip you know halfway through your business lifespan right. um I I find it easier to to remember it that way, but when you get into floor toms, that's when it's weird. Is it a fourteen by sixteen yeah. or is it a sixteen by fourteen? Like, there was actually a weird. Uh, I think Craviato made like a little sixteen inch bass drum that was like twenty inches deep. So it was like a okay, like a bazooka, <laughs> right? And that was the one without seeing the photo, we would have gotten it wrong. We just said, okay, it's a twenty inch head, it's twenty it's, by sixteen. Yeah, yeah. Or, but sorry, sixteen by. 20. <laughs> See, I can't do it. I can't. It has to be. Tell me the size of head I have to buy, and then we'll figure out the depth later. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, so there is no right or wrong way. I think maybe the industry is leaning more towards your way, but we're going to hold out until we see that it's kind of a universal decision. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> All right. Uh, another one from Dave. Um, he says, I hear that the Baron Edge makes a big difference in sound. However, I've not been able to get to a jump shop to compare. Mm. Um, would you be able to comment? Um for example, well, like, uh, Gretsch uses the 30-degree bearing edge, and how does that compare to a 45-degree bearing edge? Yeah. Uh, you know, He's also heard that less contact with the shell, i.e. a sharper bearing edge, leads to better tone and sustain. However, more contact with the shell allows the shell to vibrate more. So these are those two claims, I think, are questionable. Um, I agree. But so you, I think they're also up to per, you know personal. Uh, you know, everyone's different. Got a different opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the logic is sure. The more the drum head contacts the shell, therefore it's going to force the shell to vibrate more. But if you think about it, more contact with the shell means the shell isn't able to vibrate as much because there's more stuff contacting it. Yeah, and it also means that it's it's more of the shell that's acting almost like a piece of gaff tape on that head. It's it's yeah. it's muffling the head by making that contact. So you have less of the head being able to um, reverberate. So um, I definitely noticed a, 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 a difference. I mean, the easiest way for me to put it into terms for people to understand is those rounder bearing edges have a warmer sound with less attack that I've noticed. Um, they just... It's it's a warmer, more natural sound, um, a little less focused, and obviously this is still dependent on the heads you choose and the tuning and the way you play. If you bash the hell out of my broadcaster, there's going to be plenty of attack. Yeah, um, right. And then when you have that sharp bearing edge, you just get that instant attack, and it's a very focused sound. Um, so I, I think it's it's almost like modern versus vintage to me. Yeah, I think that's the best way to think of it. If you want it to be kind of punchy and short, then you want a rounder edge. If you want it to be kind of a brighter, longer sound with kind of more projection in general, a brighter edge, but I mean a sharper edge. But I think there are very few people who are still making super-duper sharp edges anymore because I think they right. realized that that was, you know, you go too far, then you can't tune the drum. It's like there's not enough... Well, yeah, there's that, and then it's it's silly because you put all this effort into making this extremely gorgeous, sharp bearing edge, and then you see everyone that bought your kit puts gaff tape and moon gels all over it. Yeah, because it just so rings like, forever. Yeah, yeah. So so there is, you know, I think there's a, a good balance. So yeah, it makes a huge difference. I mean, again, I think it's kind of like when we discussed dynamics. You have to you have to explore the extremes. So you know, find right. someone who owns a vintage Ludwig or Slingerland or Gretsch kit, and then some and then take your modern tama or whatever you have and put the same heads on it and you're gonna you're gonna immediately tell what's different about it you don't even need you don't even need words you just you'll hear it you'll feel it uh so anyway uh, let's do one more sure um this is probably a pretty quick one so this is from calum um he's looking at getting new heads uh new snare heads so I know that you put a thinner head on the bottom, but why? And what would happen if you use a thicker head as the reso head on a snare drum? Oh, I can tell you exactly what the hell happens because it happened to me at a drum festival. <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> is, is you go, conk, conk. And I'm like, what the hell's wrong with this snare? And then I flip it over and I'm like, uh, hey, Columbia, <laughs> did you guys put a, my 14-inch Tom clear head on uh, the bottom. They're like, yeah, they just sent two of those, two bottom heads, you know, one for snare and one for floor Tom. And I'm like, uh, clearly whoever assembled this is not a drum tech. Did you notice that it was, you know, 
four <laughs> inches thick. Uh, so, anyways, I was polite. <laughs> I was like, no big deal. I'm going to go outside and see if I can find some saran wrap to put under this instead. Um, yeah, it's a very. What did you um, do? Uh, luckily, there was just kind of a, a crap loner snare laying around, and I just stripped the head off of that. Uh. Um, but but honestly, it. I'll tell you this, it didn't occur to me that there might be a tom head on the bottom of my snare. I just, I kept tuning and I was like, what the hell's wrong with this snare? Because, I mean, it's not so, so drastic that immediately you go, there's something wrong with the bottom. It was just like, man, this thing's wonky. It just goes like, bonk, bonk. And it, I'm not really hearing any snare response. So I guess to answer our listener's question, you know, the snare response is almost gone. The head isn't thin enough to, to do its job and, and vibrate those snares properly. So the snare response is almost gone no matter what you do. Um, and, yeah, it just sounds muddy and not what you want your snare drum to sound like. I mean, unless you're trying to do something extremely weird. Yeah. Um, but it, as far as I know, I, I mean, even when I have bought vintage snares from the 30s and 40s just as collective pieces, they still had a really thin film um, you know, head on the bottom. Um, yeah. I, so I don't know when. I mean, there must have been a time when there was skinheads on the bottom too, right? They didn't have mylar forever. Yeah, so. yeah, it was just a thinner piece of calfskin. Um, okay, which I think is also part of what gave those drums their their character was that it was a thin head, but it wasn't like a like a razor thin what piece of now, mylar. Sure. So it kind of had a a warmer, kind of more muted snare response, and that kind of when right. I think of a vintage snare drum of the 50s that's kind of what i think of is it it has more of a earthy kind of a vibe and i think that's mainly because the bottom head is is thicker um that said there are different versions of bottom heads that i think you might not be aware of like i know evans has a few different thicknesses remo i believe still has the diplomat the ambassador and the emperor snare side we all i think probably 90 percent of us use the ambassador weight but there's a thinner one and then there's a thicker one that they will do very different things. I think there's even a there's a Renaissance one that Remo has that'll give you more of that calfskin sound and they might even have the black the black max or whatever they call it or black suede or something. So they're they're different uh bottom heads that you know, it's probably something you should think about if your snare drum is if it's just way too bright and the snares are just like too in your face, then maybe go one step thicker with the bottom head. Or if the drum just feels really dull, maybe you need to go to the thinner version. Right. Um, but that's for me, that's the biggest difference. If the drum is, is not giving me the snare response I want, I'll make sure that it's a thin head. If it's like just way too much snare, then maybe go one step thicker. There you um, go. So, yeah, that's that. So pick of the week time. Boom. Where are you going first? Um, I know what yours is. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, so mine is, well, we're not sharing one this week, right? We are not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not nothing against your pick of the week. I, I love myself some Keith. <laughs> I'm not sharing that crap. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, actually, a mutual friend of ours. That's Florian, right? Florian yeah. Alexandru Zorn. His his online lessons website. He brought in Keith Carlock to do, uh, you know, I guess a full course. But they put up a, a 18 minute free video of him demonstrating shuffles. I mean. It might be the best lesson on the different types of shuffles I've ever seen. I mean, he just, he gives you the Texas shuffle. He gives you the Chicago shuffle. the halftime shuffle, the jazz shuffle. Uh, and it's kind of like textbook, and I mean, there's really no better authority i think than to have keith carlock play these shuffles he's playing so many shuffles with steely dan and he's he's from the south so he grew up playing a lot of blues and r&b and stuff so if you really want to get a good idea of just your basic shuffle grooves check it out it's called learning shuffle grooves with keith carlock on youtube but most importantly just check out the way that guy plays the drums he's 
You know, yeah. some people love the Keith Carlock of the Wayne's, Wayne Krantz era, where it's a lot of notes and a lot of cool stuff. I like it when he just plays a simple groove. I mean, his dynamic and, and control is just perfect. Yeah, the way he, yeah, everything, I mean, every note he hits, it's like how did he? How, you, you never hear him muff a note. Like he can hit the hi hat like partially open, super light, and it's like that sounds exactly like I would want it to sound like. Like every yeah. note is perfect. If you want to hear Keith and really hear the space and hear the control while still getting your drum nerd on, check out his band Rudder R U D D E R. Uh, that's some of my favorite stuff. I uh, they were definitely a big influence in maybe not in the sound of my band, but definitely in the fact that I wanted to be in a band after hearing that I was like, mm. you know what? I want to do something like this. I want to be creative and be in a project. And, and rudder was a huge uh, driving force behind that. So check out rudder and you'll get to hear Keith really, especially with that bass drum tone of his, that wide open kick. Yeah, you get to hear him just explore what it's like to make your bass drum as important to the music as any other instrument in the world. It's it's pretty incredible. So I yeah. agree with you. So check that out on YouTube. Um, and my pick of the week this time is not the cheapest thing in the world. Um, so far, uh, I want to just call somebody out here. Carter McLean has been, like, rough on my pocket. Um, <laughs> I'm not kidding, dude. Like, okay, so I don't know if you know, but, like, the, the whole way we started becoming friends was actually through this podcast – he was your friend and, and or is your friend and listened to this and then heard on the podcast that I was into watches. So yeah. the first thing he sent me was this link to a custom watch strap maker. Uh, those straps start at maybe $250. I started ordering those. <laughs> so he got me in on that. Um, and, I, and you need them in every color. And then and I'm just going broke through straps. Then we start sending, and then we start kind of a little bit of a friendship, and we start sending pictures of microphones back and forth, and we do the mic oh, battle. Man. Then we do the watch thing. <laughs> then we do the outboard gear thing. He gets his BAE preamps. I'm going full Neve. We're sending those pictures back and forth. Oh, man. Now he sends me this picture of his cat. I'm not buying cats, but he sends me a picture of a cat. And it's got this, I'm going to kind of explain my blonde moment here, but it's got this look to the picture and to the film and to the footage where I'm like, damn, that's what I've always wanted my pictures to look like. And he tells me, uh, it just, it kind of tags it, Fujifilm X100F, got to check out this new camera. And I'm like, wait a minute, there, one of my students, uh, his name is Rob, uh, Rob Hall, I believe, he, he plays for a band called Catfish and the Bottleman. And he always posts these pictures on Instagram that I think are just gorgeous. And he always tags it Fujifilm X100F. Mm. Well, here's my problem. I thought that that was a a filter on Instagram that I just couldn't find. Uh. I was like, oh, if I just had the Fujifilm X100F filter, I'd be all good. <laughs> I did not know it was a camera. So once Carter sends oh, me these no. pictures, I'm like, oh, I got to get that camera. So here's the deal. It's not the cheapest camera in the world. It's definitely not the most expensive. Uh, it was about $1,500 uh, with tax. Oof. But hold on, hold on. Let's just, let's just, let's just assume my wife is going to hear this podcast. Let's put this into perspective here. here okay, so for, uh, you, have, you have a DSLR, right? Yeah, yeah, I got a okay, $400 and, one. <laughs> but you still have a DSLR. You still have the size of it. Yeah, yeah. I have one. Carter has one. I never travel with my cameras because the body is large and the lenses are large and it's just it's really yeah. committing to an entire extra bag that I'm going to have to carry. Right, right. So my phone has become my camera. My iPhone 7 takes great pictures but not at the level that my DSLR would. Well, this Fujifilm X100F is not much bigger than a cell phone, comes with a fixed lens, but it takes pictures that are honestly quite a bit better than my DSLR. And the, and it has built-in filters into it that are just gorgeous, and you have to you don't have to do very much work. The other thing I like about it is the camera itself is a Wi-Fi camera, so you send the picture from the camera to your phone without ever having to remove a memory card or anything like that, That's and then cool. you can just immediately edit it, throw it on Instagram. So, um, and it, it's also doing 1080p HD video in all the way up to 60 frames per second with those same filters. So you could. If you wanted to make an artsy video real quick while I'm out on the road, you could just throw on the artsy black and white filter and you're good to go. Um, but 
so for me, the reason why I wanted this was I wanted to have a high-quality camera that I could take with me because I'm always traveling to these amazing locations, and my phone is my only thing to show that it existed. I wanted to have something a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So the Fujifilm X100F, um, if those of you guys that know what a Leica camera is, this is going to do that. But instead of spending $6,000, you're spending, you know, the camera's twelve ninety nine, but with... Um, obsessive overnight shipping uh, gets a little bit more expensive now so yeah uh shoot i (laughs) forgot my point there's different models there's like an x100t right what's the difference the the f is the newest one and that's the one that comes with the wi-fi capabilities ah there you go wouldn't want to spend um, that much money on the lesser one (laughs) there you go (laughs) and uh and then, yeah, so I got it. In, it looks like an old school. Uh, it's got a silver top, um, black body. It's, it looks like an old school Olympus yeah. you know, camera that you would get in the 60s or 70s. So the form factor is awesome. The, um, the screen is fantastic. Uh, it's a really, especially for any of you guys out there that are like, look, I'm not a camera guy, but I just wish I could take good pictures. This is a great point and shoot camera, but it gives you that look of like, oh, n- now I have that that shot that I was looking for. So interesting. I, I would say probably the last 10 pictures that Carter and myself have both put up on Instagram have been shot with the Fuji X 100 F Fuji film X 100 F. So like I said, it's not a cheap buy, but if you're somebody that's willing to spend some money on a camera and, and you don't want to have a big DSLR body with a big giant lens, this is the way to go. So are you doing any post editing or is this all in the camera when you post something i would say 90 percent of what i did is in the camera and then a little bit of it is on instagram okay so just and the I, basic editing on instagram yeah i'm not you can go into i would say if anybody wants to do some editing on their phone uh i would say your best app is probably going to be snapseed that'll be that's going to get you pretty close to what lightroom does i i pay for the adobe subscription so i do use the lightroom app and i'm very familiar with that um with that format and with that software, but Snapseed would be a great one um, for any of you that want to do like custom curves or even just have some plug-in, uh, uh, what do you call them, filters that where mm-hmm. you just choose their filter. Snapseed is a high-quality uh, photo editor, or like I said, you could just use Lightroom if you're familiar with Adobe products. Dig it. All right, cool. Boom. Pick. It's like a camera lesson. There we go. All right. <laughs> All right. Everybody, is- have an amazing week. I'm going to go inspire. I'm going to go teach. And uh, by the way, I, we were working on something, myself and, the, and my web developer, Brad. We, most people probably don't know this, but Mike's Lessons has been around for 10 years, and we've never once had a sale or a promotion or a special offer. We've never done anything like that. Hmm. But I really want the listeners of this podcast to get a chance to try out the courses and see how fast they could grow with those compared to any type of other education they've had in the past. So I'm working with Brad to see if we can do something special for our listeners just to get everyone a chance to try things out and just see if our format works for them. So I'll keep everybody posted on that. Dig it. And we will keep everybody posted on our future camp. Yeah. Next week I will have brand new eyeballs. Oh my gosh. I can't <laughs> wait, man. Can't wait to hear about it. All right. It'll be awesome. All right, buddy. Have a good week. See ya. Later, buddy.